0: edition of the illegal motion college football podcast in los angeles california i'm the professor matt perkins and joining us from the film room in nashville tennessee it's the coach cory burton
1: what's going on guys usually you say uh just out of the film room mm-hmm. but i am literally inside of the film room as we speak uh, that's probably why you hear a slight echo where i'm at because i'm not in my usual setting so uh, i do apologize for the echo but um it is good to be here again. Uh, I've had a couple of days to lick my wounds over the weekend, so uh, I'm, ready to, I'm ready to rock and roll.
0: Coach, I'm sure that you've got a, a laser pointer in one hand and a, sharp, in a, uh, in a whiteboard marker in the other one, right? Of course. Okay, good, good. Well, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't introduce the third amigo in the second city, a man who spent a lot of this weekend studying up on Jim Grove. It's our intrepid blogger from Big Ten and Counting, Josh Cook. Oh yeah!
2: I've got a uh, stems from a conversation that we had on our last show, and I'm very excited for my uh, one and only
0: quick slant of the week. All right. Well, yeah. Uh, speaking of that, uh, today we're changing up our show a little bit because we are halfway through the season. And uh, we're, so what we're going to do is just do a quick recap of the games from this past weekend, week seven. But we're going to focus the second half of our show uh, on sort of looking at the bigger picture um, from what has transpired over the first half of the season. But first, like always, like Josh mentioning, uh, it's time for some quick slants. So, uh, Josh, uh, you're up first. And uh, like you said, you got a little uh, some info here on Jim Grove, the Baylor head coach, who has guided their team to a nice start of the season.
2: Yeah, so uh, we always include Kansas in our spread formations because the spreads are always absurd for their games, and uh, Baylor was a 35-point favorite last week. Uh, I, like an idiot, took Kansas because they played a little better, and lo and behold, Baylor killed them 49-7, to covered that spread. But something you said, Professor, was has Jim Grobe ever covered a spread that big in his career? And that sounded like a wonderful thing to research. So, obviously, he covered that spread uh, Saturday. But uh, in addition, actually, to Baylor's hot start, their six wins have gotten him over five hundred for his career. He's 116, 115, and 1. And he was five hundred at Ohio and did really well at Wake Forest. I know 77-82 doesn't sound like much, but he won a conference title at Wake They only have two in program history, and he went three and two in bowl games. Uh, So they had a three and two bull mark prior to him getting there. He doubled up their bulls. So while this might sound like I'm insulting Jim Grove, he's actually a really good coach. Um, So we mean this in all all compliments to Jim Grove. But the 35-point spreads – uh, in 1996 with the Ohio Bobcats beat two teams, Bowling Green and Western Michigan by 38 nothing each. In 97 beat Buffalo 50 to nothing when Buffalo was an FCS school at the time, and won at Eastern Michigan 47 to 7. Fast forward to 1999, they uh, knocked off Buffalo, then a member of the Mac 45 to 6. In 2000 they had three they uh, walloped tennessee tech the fcs school 52 to 14 won at kent state 44 to 7 and drubbed central michigan 52 to 3 fast forward to 2004 he's now with wake they just knocked off one team north carolina ant the fcs school 42 to 3 but in the following season in 05 they won at wallace wade stadium and duke 44 to 6 in uh, 2010, so five years later, Wake knocked off Presbyterian 53-13. In 2011, they beat Gardner-Webb 48-5, and that's the last time he had done it until Baylor. Now, I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, well, what about the year they won the ACC title? That was a very, very interesting team. That was a 2006 club, and the ACC was, like it always is, a total mess. Uh, Wake won their Division going six and two, Boston College finished second at five and three. Clemson beat both teams that were in the ACC title game that year, uh, but lost a lot of games along the way. They went five and three in conference, eight and five overall and um, Wake just had one of those magical years. They had a great defense. I think they had about 20 interceptions as a defense um, led by Josh Gaddis's five. And uh, they, they did blow out a few teams. They had some nice lopsided victories, but none of them quite got to that 35 range. And um, you know, they came up just a little bit short in the Orange Bowl. But that 06 team was a hell of a club. Just didn't get to that 35 point margin for uh, for the magical number.
0: All right, nice research there, Josh. Uh, Coach, what's your slam for the day?
1: Well, um, I'm going to go around the SEC. Uh, it was kind of an interesting week in conference one that saw Derek Mason got hit, getting his first conference road win, uh, a thriller out in Provo, uh, Alabama, complete Alabama beatdown uh, and uh, beatdowns by Florida and LSU um, as well. So I'm going to kind of take a, a, a brief look at each of these games. Uh, I'm going to start with the thriller in Provo, go with the most exciting first. Taysom Hill, uh, he, uh, he rolled. He, had, uh, he threw for three touchdowns in this game. Uh, this game went into double overtime, so he threw the game winner uh, on on that. Um, it was one of those fan storm the game type uh, type game. But it it was a tight one all the way. Uh, Moroni Lalu Patuatua.
0: I think yeah. that's how he's
1: doing it. I just wanted to attempt that name. That's why I paused. Um, he uh You know, both offenses couldn't really get a whole lot going uh, in in looking at this game, but he scored a 15-yard touchdown. It was third goal. Um, You know, he kind of tied things up. Just when you thought kind of BYU was going to get to that point where, okay, now here's where the SEC team with a lot of depth, uh, here's kind of where they take over now. But he uh, – I'm going to try this again. Maroney, Laulu, Patuatau. Patuatau. Put Tua Tua, tied things up, um, and just kind of gave BYU a shot. And, and BYU is one of those teams, and we all know this, that if you, if you give them a shot, if you, if you leave them hanging around, they're going to get you. Um, and that's exactly what they did. They took them into overtime, and that's where they got them. Taysom Hill, his stats, if you look at the numbers, they don't seem all that impressive. But, you know, when you look at kind of what they did and what kind of game they were in, uh, they're more impressive than you think. Uh, Taysom Hill 16 of 28 for 165 yards he threw three touchdowns had one interception he also scored one on the ground um, in one of his 17 carries uh, rushing for 53 yards Um, offensively for Mississippi State Nick Fitzgerald was 17 of 36 for 214 yards a touchdown and two costly interceptions. Uh, had nobody rush or catch for over a hundred yards. So he kind of spread the ball out around a little bit. Um, but it was an interesting game. Uh, uh, if you're BYU, um, it could be one of those program propellers. If you're Mississippi state, uh, this is likely going to send them into a tailspin. Uh, any chances of a bowl were probably wasted here in Provo. I, I think it's going to be a rough stretch for Mississippi state um, as they finish the season. Um, Vanderbilt, uh, I talked about Derek Mason getting his first conference road win. He did that between the hedges. It seems like UGA the last couple of seasons have been signature win you if a, or a slump buster. So if a coach needed to break a, a losing streak or get his first signature win, uh, why not just call Georgia? They'll help you out. Uh, special teams was the culprit here. Um, Vanderbilt took advantage, took full advantage of special teams' mistakes they they uh they returned to kick 92 yards to open the game uh and after a after an illegal after a uh offsides penalty set them up at the one at first and goal so they had a two play drive from the one um to uh, to take a seven-nothing lead there coming out of halftime Reggie Davis uh kept fields a kickoff that's going out of bounds on the 3 and his momentum takes him out of bounds, which is a huge no-no. If the kick is anywhere near the sideline, uh, you let it go, and either goes in in the end zone for a touchback, or it goes out and you get the ball at thirty-five. So um, we all knew, we all knew coming into the season that defensively, Vandy that was their strong suit, and it was it absolutely was. Uh, I'm trying to find uh, I'm trying to find stats for uh, for Cunningham. Um, I believe he had eighteen tackles. Um, on the day, and I'm going to get that here in just a second. Yeah, he had 19 tackles, six six of them solos. He had two and a half tackles for loss. Uh, just an absolute animal there um, as, a, as, a, as a linebacker. He's going to be uh, conference player of the year, I think, at that position. He is leading the conference in tackles. So a huge win for Vandy, uh, taking advantage of a stout defense that bend. They did a lot of bending, but they never broke. Uh, Jacob Eason, twenty-seven of forty for three hundred forty-six yards. So, if you just looked at that stat alone, what would you guys assume? Georgia blowout. Georgia blowout, right? Mm-hmm. Wrong. Yes, uh, they couldn't finish drives, and that was Cunningham. That was the defensive front. They were getting pressure on Eason all day long. Um, you know, and and it, the. the the sack totals didn't they – only, they only had one sack on the day, but the pressure they put on him, they forced him into a lot of uh, bad throws, a lot of just having to get rid of it, and a lot of uh, field goal kicking and a lot of just plays that would uh, – or they forced him into penalties, holding penalties and stupid things like that. So uh, a very – you know, another another game of – a rookie head coach, and a coach with his back against the wall. I think Derek Mason kind of bought himself maybe at least another year with this win. So uh, big shout-out to Derek Mason and the Vanderbilt Commodores. Unfortunately, it comes at the expense of the Georgia Bulldogs. I wish it would have come at the expense of somebody else. Uh, moving on to Knoxville, the CBS game of the week.
0: Usually we do a deep root on this game, but it was you know so lopsided that I decided to just cut it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was supposed to be. And I, I was thinking we were going to talk about this in the deep roots as far as being like the game of the century. You know, Tennessee was going to battle all the way through, and they didn't. They got demolished. All the issues that I've talked about came became glaring. They couldn't tackle. They couldn't cover. They couldn't do anything. You had Jalen Hurts and Bo Scarborough each rushing for over 100 yards. So – uh, professor, there's your Bo Scarborough appearance.
0: Yeah, it's about time.
1: Um, you had O.J. Howard checking in. I'm going to look at some of these stats here. Our uh, David spec-
0: Stewart both running and catching the ball had a nice game too?
1: Yeah. I mean, Ronnie Harrison had a 58-yard pick six. Eddie Jackson had a 79-yard punt return. Um, I mean, just – it was – I mean, if, if you look at Alabama – it just didn't seem like they could do anything wrong, um, and you looked at Tennessee, and uh, at one point you saw Alvin Kamara score uh, in the first, in the second quarter that cut the lead to uh, to uh, fourteen to seven, and then ten, and then Alabama answered right back, and then it was blowout city from there. So um, not much to say about it except Alabama they gained eight point nine yards per carry, Tennessee only had one. Uh, the total yardage was 594 to 163. Ouch. Um, but up next, the Vols have a week off, and then they, they visit South Carolina. And then Alabama, um, they take on number six, Texas A&M, and what will hopefully be a better game of the century. Um, but the sad part is, is I think Tennessee will still be in Atlanta for the SEC championship. So um, that was a that was a troubling game if you're a Tennessee fan. All right, uh, Florida-Missouri. I said this was going to be an interesting game to see kind of how and where Florida was after that week off. Looks like that week off did them well. Uh, they beat Missouri 40-14. to um, Jalen Tabor and Quincy Wilson uh, had picked sixes um, to help this offense get through. Um, it was a – looked like a sloppy affair. Um, looked like a rain-soaked affair. Um, they were all over Drew Law all the time, um, just mauling him. Luke Del Rio threw three interceptions uh, in his return, um, and the Gators were flagged for eight false starts. So it was kind of sloppy offensively. Luckily, defense kind of helped them along and gave them uh, opportunity after opportunity that they couldn't that they couldn't screw up. So um, despite all of the all of the bad stuff, Florida did finish with 523 yards. Uh, Jalen Tabor and Quincy Wilson um, both played a huge part and a huge role into into what they did, Um, and so they're still very much in the race. Um, Up next for the Gators, they host MTSU, Middle Tennessee State, um, and uh, that's Missouri. I'm sorry, Missouri. Up next, they host Middle Tennessee State, and the Gators uh, they get a bye week um, heading into the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. Both teams in the cocktail party have an off week this coming week, so they will get a week of rest and much-needed uh, fundamental practice before they square off in Jacksonville. All right. And then cool. In my last game, I'll just give the score. LSU rolled Southern Miss 45-10 to 10, wearing the purple jerseys.
0: Yeah. Uh, Coach, are you going to be heading down to the cocktail party this year? I uh, wish I could, but I'm not. That's too bad. Well, um, from from my slant, um, I'm going to talk about what was supposed to be an easy win for the number 13 Houston Cougars in Saturday's game against the Tulsa Golden Hurricane. But uh, it was anything but. Um, Tom Herman's squad needed a late defensive touchdown to go out on top 38-31. They uh, had a sack, fumble, scoop, and score with just over a minute left uh, uh, from after they had, uh, you know, pinned – Tulsa down uh, close to their goal line, but Tulsa's gotten out a little bit, ended up being 24-yard, you know, uh, sack, fumble, scoop, and score to uh, take the lead. But um, Tulsa, though, in the loss showed that their start to the season was definitely no fluke. They ran up uh, 459 total yards and got three turnovers off of the Cougars, but in the end, they came up just short. Hurricane coach Philip Montgomery, though, should be very proud of his kids as they came in as 22-and-a-half-point underdogs, and they stuck with the potent Cougar offense throughout the day, never and they never were behind by more than 14. Um, Greg Ward Jr., obviously for Houston, had 400 total yards but did not find the end zone once, either on the ground or through the air, and he had a pick, um, so not his finest game of the year. Dylan Burden, though, uh, did have three touchdowns uh, starting um, in place of their uh, normal starter who was out with a concussion, um, but it was definitely not a vintage performance from this Houston team that we have grown accustomed to putting up huge numbers, especially against lesser opponent. Uh, the biggest bright spot, though, of the day for Houston was definitely a guy we've talked about a lot on this show, freshman defensive tackle Ed Oliver. He had 12 tackles, including two for a loss and two passes batted down. And he's definitely showing off why he's been uh, so highly rated coming command of high school last year. And those two passes batted down give him five on the year, which is pretty good for, uh you know, a freshman defensive lineman having, you know, five past deflections already. So um, they can, you know, at least point to that as a sign of hopefully good things to come for them. But uh, Tulsa really impressed me in the way that they played in this game because we talked about last week on the show, this is one of our uh, play action, you know, deep roots uh, in the preview. And we thought that Tulsa was going to get blown out, but they really stuck in the game. So... Well, it's time to head over to our Deep Roots now uh, for this Week 7 recap. And we're just going to do three games. Um, and we're going to start with what ended up being the game of the week in Madison. Ohio State beating Wisconsin 30-23 to in overtime. Uh, Wisconsin led for most of the game. But the Ohio State uh, rushing attack uh, was a little bit too much in the end. And uh, so, I mean, Josh, I know you watched almost every snap of this game like I did. So what were some of your thoughts?
2: Well, we went toe to toe with them, and I thought we were, I was worried we we're going to get blown out. So I will gladly take the moral victory, um, which I know makes me kind of a bad f- fan in a way. But my biggest takeaway from it were, were, were two things. And the first was on one of Barrett's touchdowns, there was an egregious hold on Watt. And I realized that was the, was six- that
0: was, that was the one in overtime, right?
2: I think it was the one in regulation. Okay. Uh, it was the run of the pass, but oh, yeah. uh, the. Yeah,
0: that's right, that's right.
2: But I mean, it's a sixty-minute game. Um, Wisconsin still had their chances, so I'm not going to blame the ref. But when it's egregious enough that the commentators are talking about it and they show the replay multiple times, and Herb Street and Ohio State alone is saying you have to throw the flag there. It just makes me wonder what the refs are looking at because there's a dedicated official to look for holding. It was right in front of the play. It was the linebacker in position to make the tackle, and Ohio State just tackled him. They just tackled Watt. It wasn't even a borderline call. And, you know, there's always this feeling when you're one of the smaller programs historically that the Ohio State's, the Alabamas, the Michigans – of the world, get all these, get all the favorable calls. And it sort of happened that way again in this game. So that's upsetting because it's hard enough to take on Ohio State, let alone Ohio State and the Zebras. And then the other thing is um, the telecast is awful. I'm sorry. It's a primetime night game in Madison. You don't show the jump around. You don't really show much of the campus. Um, they showed Brutus a ton. When when the jump around was on, they did the the behind-the-scenes all-access, followed the Ohio State coordinator who leaves the booth at halftime to address the students and then goes back up. And so they followed him in that little vignette. And um, we did a double double header. I I had some Arkansas friends over here and we watched the Arkansas game and the Wisconsin game back-to-back. And midway through the Wisconsin game, one of the Arkansas fans said, is this game in, in Ohio? I'm like, no, it's in Wisconsin. And she's like, why the hell do they keep talking about Ohio State? And it, it's just so, so frustrating. I'm sure, I'm sure Coach feels the same when you're watching an SEC game featuring
1: Alabama. Yeah, it's it's, it's bad. It's really bad. I just – And, and oh, man, it it was always tough. And and I can see where – and and I feel bad for Tebow because there's a lot of Tebow fatigue, too. There's a lot of people that hate Tebow. And they don't necessarily hate Tebow because they don't necessarily hate Tebow himself. They just hate all the media circus that follows him because – uh, it just just that same thing. It just the media latches on, and it's just overkill, and, and that's all they talk about. And you're
0: just like, all right, enough of this, enough of this freaking guy. And the same thing happens whenever you watch a USC game or a Notre Dame. Like you know, we talked about the blue bloods of college football. They get the benefit of the doubt, not just from the zebras, but also from the commentators. So um... Um,
2: this puts me in a weird position to defend Notre Dame, but at least in Notre Dame's case, they have a TV network that is broadcasting their games.
0: That's true. That's true. Uh, Coach, do you have any thoughts here on the Ohio State victory?
1: Uh, I, I actually, uh, in watching this game, I didn't get a chance to watch a lot of it because of the. Uh, this was the Hall of Fame ceremony weekend for me. Oh, yeah. So I didn't really get a chance to watch a lot of football. I actually listened to the Georgia Vanderbilt game on the way to, to Georgia, so I didn't get to really watch it on TV. I just listened to it most of the way. Um, but – in uh, watching that game, I saw the entire second half, um, and I really was impressed with. I uh, actually really liked Wisconsin's play calling. I thought they did a lot of things to give themselves a chance, um, and a lot of and a lot of things that happened with Ohio State. It's just because Ohio State is extremely talented on defense, um, and they and they made plays. It wasn't, uh, and Wisconsin made it tough on them. Uh, Hornerbrook, I thought, had a. You know, I, I thought he looked very comfortable against a team of that caliber um, it was It was going to be one of those games where I thought that either Hornerbrook was going to look brilliant or he was going to completely crawl into a shell. I thought sixteen of twenty eight for two fourteen and a touchdown um, and one interception is, is a good stat line against a team like ohio state i, I and I thought they did a, a really good job of doing things to like i said doing things like jet sweeps and uh, shovel passes and creative things to kind of keep them in the game against Ohio state. Now, unfortunately for Wisconsin, Ohio state just kind of, they just kind of kept grinding, kept grinding, kept grinding. They have JT Barrett on their sidelines. So they're never out of it. They just kept doing what they did and, and they ended up winning and they, they ended up winning because they're Ohio state because urban Meyer's done a good job of recruiting um, because uh, they just are well-oiled machine at this point. Um, and that's nothing – that's not an indictment on Wisconsin. I think uh, you'll, you'll find out my thoughts on the Wisconsin program uh, later on in the show. But um, I thought defensively they did a tremendous job of limiting uh, Mike Weber and, and Samuel to each 46 yards apiece on 11 and 12 carries respectively. Uh, unfortunately, JT Barrett had 21 carries for 92 yards and two touchdowns, so they couldn't really account for the, the quarterback run. But, um, you know, JT Barrett just had – just had a tremendous ball game. Um, and he did most of his damage on the ground because he had the same stat line throwing that Hornerbrook did. So um, I, I'm going to tip my cap to Wisconsin. I don't usually believe in moral victories, but if there ever was one, I think this is one of them. And Wisconsin can point to this game and say, you know what? We did a lot of good things. You know, we, there's some things we got to work on. There's some things we got to shore up. I think the offensive line issues really just came back to bite them. There in the end, they just couldn't hang with Ohio state, especially when they got to overtime. So, um, but I'm thoroughly, thoroughly impressed with this Wisconsin program.
0: Yeah. So I want to make a, just a couple real quick points before we move on to our next game. Uh, first of all, Josh, uh, and coach, you guys both mentioned the jet sweep. And if you're a Wisconsin fan, you've got to be happy that the jet sweep is back. Jazz Peavy looked great running the ball. Uh, he was able to, to consistently get out to the edge and uh turn the corner on that Ohio State defense, which is saying something because they are you know, they have a bunch of quick defenders, but they schemed it really well. Once Ohio, once Ohio State started keying in on that, they would fake it and then give it to Clement up the middle for, you know, a good five, seven yards every time, which is also nice to see. Uh Clement, Corey Clement had his best game of the year, um for sure for Wisconsin. That is a great sign. But coach, you mentioned the offensive line. Uh the right side of the offensive line, uh Bo, right guard, Bo Benshaw and right tackles, um uh, Jacob Maxwell and David Edwards were absolutely abused in this game. Um, and that ended up being sort of the downfall because, you know, the, the right side of the line, it, Hornibrook as a lefty, that's his blind side. And his blind side just kept getting blowed up. And that what that ended up being the downfall of this team in, in the game. I was really impressed, though, with the defense playing without two of their starting linebackers, and Vince Beagle and Chris Orr, uh, you know, still played great. Jack Sitchie. Former walk-on, it was an absolute animal, had 15 tackles in the game. Uh, he was everywhere. He's He's been really outstanding for this team. T.J. Watt didn't have, have a huge stat line, but was you know, constantly pressuring JT Barrett. He got, you know, there were a bunch of times where he was held that wasn't called, like Josh mentioned, So, um, and one other thing, this was the recruiting weekend of the year in Madison. They had over 30 prospects for both football and basketball in for the game. And everyone, you know, every last one of them, you know, was seen saying that, you know, even though they lost, the atmosphere was like nothing else they'd ever seen. It was, it was electric, even with the bad broadcast. You could tell that that stadium was absolutely bumping.
1: Hey, I got a question. What is that, what is that thing they did? Uh, they came off a break one time and. They were doing something with the cell phones where they were all lit up. What what was that?
0: That's something new. That wasn't there when that, that was when, when we were undergrads. We they never did anything like that. I can't remember. Yeah,
1: that. Um, I thought that was kind
2: of cool. Uh, I think that <laughs> they actually got that from a different school because the first time I ever saw that was Iowa did that in their first night game last year. They did it against Minnesota. Uh, with all the cell phone lights, and then the following game or two, um, I saw a few other schools start to do it, um, and it looks cool. Yeah, it's a it's a fun tradition, and I, well, tradition's a little strong word, but it's a cool thing to do when you have a night game. No yeah, doubt about
0: it. For sure. All right. Well, let's head over to the SEC. Um, and by well,
2: the way, by the way, I'm not being a Texas A&M fan, laying claim to the 12th man. I'm not saying Iowa copyrighted cell phone flashlights during the night games.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, good.
2: Um, it's was... open to all fans to use in any night game. It's like the wave. Yeah. yeah. It's just cool. It's like, it looks awesome on TV. Do it, everyone should do it.
0: All right. Well, uh, in our second uh, deep root uh, that we're going to look at, uh, Arkansas had a nice win over Ole Miss um, a- on Saturday. And Josh, you I, you mentioned that you were watching um, you were watching this game, so it was at Arkansas. You had a bunch of Arkansas fans in your place. So, uh, you know, how do you feel about the game?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's weird to to put on my SEC expert hat. I think this is the first SEC game I've watched wire to wire. I usually check in on them, but never sit down and actually watch it. And, uh, my God, this Arkansas team is one of the more interesting 5-2 and teams. I'm not sure they're the best two-loss team because uh, they have a very weak offensive line. They have a very erratic rushing attack because of that line. They have a... Problem finding their tight ends because obviously Hunter Henry, the Mackey Award winner, being gone, left a kind of a hole in that position group. Uh, but they have a gutsy, gutsy quarterback who's willing to take massive hits to throw the ball, and they have Brett Belama who knows that this team doesn't have an identity he would prefer to have, but gets it gets it done with some great play calls some, you know, timely fourth down calls. Um, just, they really, really impressed me. And looking ahead, they got a tough trip to the Plains. Um, Auburn, Auburn's playing well, but I got to say, I, I think Arkansas looks better than they host Florida and LSU. With that home crowd in Fayetteville, they certainly have to like their chances. And then they end with road trips to the struggling Mississippi State and Missouri, Uh Winning out, I don't think, would surprise me. They really, really impressed me. And um, I don't know if this – I don't know the Arkansas program well enough to know if their fans thought that this was going to be a rebuilding year. But um, on the outside looking in, knowing some of the talent that they lost between the quarterback and Henry and all that, um, to me this felt like a rebuilding year. And if they're in position to win 9, 10 games in a rebuild season, uh, hats off to what has built there at Arkansas.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, we go back and we look at this Arkansas team, and as, as we preview them, we're like, yeah, they lost two, but they really haven't looked good to this point. But, I mean, their only two losses were two, the number one Alabama Crimson Tide and number six Texas A&M. Um, and, yeah, they won a thriller at TCU, and TCU is not as good as everybody thought they were. They're not as, they're not the same TCU team that we know and love. But, I mean, this team is is, is sitting at five and two, and still not yet found their identity is, is a pretty scary deal, and go, coming into the season, I think fans expected it to be a competitive rebuild, meaning that, yeah, we may not do much, and yeah, this is going to be a tough season, but we're going to compete in every ball game um, and, and that they have I mean at five and two they're you know they're actually turning a few heads and, and doing things that they're exceeding the expectations, like you said Josh, and and they're doing it in a way that uh, you know, when you think of Arkansas, you think of just road grading and uh, running the ball, power running, top 20 in the nation in, in, in rush offense and, and just, just dominating people uh, with power, power, power. But they're not necessarily doing that. Their offensive line is is not what it used to be. Um, they're not as strong as they used to be, surprisingly so. Um, and they're in a little bit of a rebuild there too. Um, but, I mean, they're, they're they're playing pretty good football despite – not being as talented as everybody else, and despite this having to be a, quote, rebuilding year. So I-, I was impressed with what I saw in Arkansas. I thought they were starting to kind of turn a corner. I thought they were going to be the team I thought they were, and then they get sh- they get shellacked by Alabama and Texas A&M, and that kind of had me second-guessing. But I'm starting to kind of move my chips a little bit over to, to Arkansas' side now. I think they're going to be kind of I – don't, I don't think that any other team besides Alabama is going to – Uh, represent the West in in Atlanta. But um, they're going to be right there in the mix with A&M. But they've got a tough one against Auburn. We'll see what they've really got uh, again this week against Auburn. We'll see if they can continue to do what they do. And if they find an identity, this may be less of a fluke and more of who they are. So um, I'm excited. I think Arkansas is definitely a team that's trending upward.
0: Yeah, and you know one thing—you really got to give Arkansas' defense some credit in this game. They held Chad Kelly to under fifty percent passing. Um, they had seven pass deflections, six quarterback hurries, two ta- two sacks. Like they were all over him all game. That was that, that was the most impressive thing in this game for me. Um, but let's head over to uh, to Clemson, South Carolina, for our last deep route, where uh, Clemson needed a whole needed uh, overtime and a whole lot of bad picking from North. Carolina State to uh, pull out the win. So, Josh, you and I were texting, like, throughout this game. And, you know, m- my first question is, what the heck was Dave Dorn thinking in the fourth quarter, not just running the ball in Vienzo?
2: Yeah, I mean, y- you've got to it- – it's tough because you got to you – got to score with no time left. Uh, and the easiest way to kind of plan that timing – is to kick a field goal. And when you have an outstanding special teams unit, that's the smart play. But you've already had a missed field goal and you've already had a blocked field goal up to that point. So you know your special teams is struggling. I would rather, you know, I would rather punch it in, stay aggressive, and give Clemson, you know, the ball with, 45 seconds to a minute left, down seven, then attempting a last-second field goal to win. Um, And, you know, it it wasn't just that possession also. You know, I I always like to stress it as a 60-minute game. It's really easy to look at that. But there was another missed opportunity, and Indiana did the same thing. Uh, Clemson fumbled the ball, gave NC State great field position at the twenty-six. And they couldn't come up with a touchdown. If you're gifted a super short field like that, you have to make six. Now, in Indiana's case, they made their field goal on that drive, so that at least it was successful. But Frenzy State gifted that field goal position or field position. That was when they had their kick blocked. So they got nothing out of their best starting field position all day. And then after the block, by the way, Clemson went down and scored a touchdown. So that's almost like a 10-point swing. So, I mean, just when you're trying to pull off the upset, you cannot fart away amazing opportunities. And NC State messed up two of them, and it cost
1: them.
0: Yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. Um it was uh, – th- that was definitely a, some, some real missed opportunity for Dave Dorn to get his signature win. Uh, Coach, did you get a chance to check out any of this game?
1: I checked out, like I said, the, the tail end of it um, when I got to my destination in Atlanta between the time of getting ready and going to the Hall of Fame event. Um, and I noticed that Clemson just – I don't know what's up with this Clemson team. It just seems like they're, they're stuck in first gear most of the time, uh, they're kind of playing down to their opponents a little bit. They're just kind of playing with no energy this year, which is something that all of last year, it just seems like they were the energy team and that's how they got by. They're not doing that this year. And I'm not sure why. And, uh, and it's just, it's weird. It's weird to say that Clemson is the team that has no energy when their head coach is the one that's always dancing and jumping around on the sidelines and their defensive coordinators, you know, having, you know, they made a whole game day, uh, ESPN College Game Day special about the, the guy who pulls the coach back onto the sideline. You know, that's a, that's a new job description thanks to Brent Venables um, of, of the guy that pulls the coach back. So it, it's, it's just odd to say that Clemson has no energy and they come out flat on several occasions this year. Um, the only game they didn't come out flat for was the, the Louisville game, which is a primetime deal. And that's, that's going to come out and bite them um, here in the near future when they, when they lose to somebody that they shouldn't. Um, because they came out flat. They should have lost to NC State. They had no – you know, they, they barely escaped that one. Um, and that was all due to, to to the special teams, the third phase, that nobody gives much importance to. They made a couple of – they made a couple of plays to keep themselves alive, and then they just finally did what Clemson does, and they scored quick in overtime. So uh, – and then they intercepted a pass on, I think it was the first or second play of overtime for uh, NC State's possession. So uh, – you know, you just gotta scratch your head and say, Man, when when this Clemson team wakes up, you know, they're pretty daggum good. But when they don't, they are pretty bad. So they they are there's no really in between for Clemson. They can't they can't handle sleepwalking through an opponent. Uh not really many teams can. Uh there's a there's a handful of teams that could, but Clemson's definitely not one of them. So I just it just jumped out to me the lack of energy they had, the lack of urgency it seemed like that
0: they had. Yeah, definitely. And you know, um, Clemson's had a couple of close calls this year, but they keep pulling it out of their butt. So, Um, well, I think we need to head over to our uh, our mid-year analysis. And uh, we should start, though, by mentioning uh, that there was another firing over the weekend in Purdue. Coach Daryl Hazel, uh, he finally was mercifully canned after going for, I I think it was like 0-50, basically. (laughs) Um, But Josh, I I know you, you, you you had a quick thought on this.
1: I, I would say that we did a good job of getting something right, but I don't think we could have screwed that that prediction up. So <laughs> um, it's going to be interesting uh, to see kind of what direction they go, um, if they kind of go the Kansas route of hiring an off-the-field guy uh, to come in and, you know, think outside the box and hopefully to, to strike lightning in a bottle with uh, – with some off-the-wall hire or if they're going to think that they can try to lure in somebody big time. or It just depends on what – I'm just kind of interested to see what they do and what direction they go.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, Hazel didn't do himself any favors. He was very wishy-washy with quarterbacks. He had a revolving door there uh, until this season when basically everyone that was decent had left the program but David Blau, so he stuck with Blau. Um, had some curious you know, calls, I know, in the Iowa game. They had a fourth and eight right around uh, maybe about the, their own 45-yard line. So two seconds left and a half. To, you know, take the Hail Mary shot. Why not? Take a timeout. They discuss it. They come out and kneel it down and left to a chorus of booze. Just weird head-scratching calls like that. So, you know, Hazel was an obvious problem, but – The Purdue facilities, I cannot highlight how bad they are. So in 2015, they made a $60 million commitment to football, and they still haven't raised the funds. When you go to the Purdue ross Aid renovation, it still has a donation tab. You look at what they're planning to do. It says potential improvements, fan experience, new sound system, new scoreboard. Ribbon video boards, lights, and a brick addition to existing field wall. That sounds really exciting. And I love that they included lights. Um, the Big Ten passed a, a rule that said all schools need to have lights because Purdue is the only team without lights, and it was becoming a major hassle. They want to add some stuff to their pavilion and their south end zone, and they're planning to do a you know add some more practice fields, all for sixty million. And just to put this in, in frame of reference, it's not like Iowa was a huge spender on their program. Iowa's already announced a ninety million dollar improvement to Kinnick Stadium uh, by, I believe, either twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen, and they already have the money for it. It's just a matter of being able to finalize the, the blueprints and get it built. So, Purdue is going to continue to be awful until they show any commitment to the program because. Hazel was just a symptom of a bigger problem, and that is Purdue doesn't give a crap about football. It's that simple.
0: Yeah, well, um, so let's – so we're we're going to got a couple topics we're going to bat around here for our our, our mid-year superlatives, and we're going to start with our biggest pleasant surprise. And um, I guess I'm going to go first, and I've got Texas A&M. I picked them to finish sixth in the SEC West. And they are sick. <laughs> no, um, I had uh, I had uh, their coach being the first canned. Uh, that's clearly not happening. And. Um, Uh, Trevor Knight has been a revelation in his second life at Texas A&M. I am thoroughly, thoroughly impressed with his play this year. And obviously, uh, obviously the Texas A&M defense has made leaps and bounds in the last two years. I think coach, you can talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, the defensive strides they made. You've watched them a little bit more than I have, but you know, Texas A&M for me is my biggest pleasant surprise with a honorable mention going to West Virginia. So, um, who are still undefeated and really roasted uh, Texas Tech this past weekend in Lubbock. Uh, Josh, who's your biggest pleasant surprise?
2: Well, I have uh, a couple teams I want to throw out there across uh, two different uh, categories of surprise. And the first is the college football playoff surprise, and that is Washington. This is a team that uh, Coach and I – Thought they would improve. We were both high on them. But I believe, Matt, you had them winning the Pac-12 North. Um, so you certainly saw a little bit more than we did. And, you know, the way they're killing teams, they're up to fifth in the country, I believe, in the real poll, fourth in mine. Uh, just hats off to Chris Peters. And then the other category is uh, teams that have been down on the mat that are now in, in good shape to make a bowl game. I got two of those teams. One is Army. We've talked about them before on the show. The other is Eastern Michigan. They won again. They're up to 5 and 2. They head to Western Michigan. They can spoil the Broncos' season potentially. Even if they don't win that, they still have a favorable schedule to end the season over 500. And I know that doesn't sound like much, but just to put it in perspective, do either of you want to try a, a guess the last time Eastern Michigan football was above 500? 2007?
1: No. Uh, 1954. Uh, for all that hyperbole,
2: Coach, you feel like you're a little closer than Matt. Uh, it was 1989. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean, baby steps. Baby steps with Eastern Michigan, 5-2. and two. They have a nice win over a Wyoming team that's above 500. Uh, I'm just really, really impressed that they're having a fun season
0: for a school that's often overlooked and often on the map. Uh, Coach, what's your, uh, what, what are your big surprises?
1: Well, um, depends. All right, let's see. Uh, I'm going to go with SEC since that's my uh, – let me have my hat back, uh, Josh. Um,
2: I'll pass it to you.
1: I'm going to say Texas A&M because of uh, how tough we were on them in the previews. Uh, didn't pick them to do as much. Uh, I think I picked them a little higher than you guys did because of the potential that I thought they may have. Uh, but Trevor Knight – has is, is been a guy that's just lit up beyond expectations. Trey Williams has has turned Texas A&M into a uh, a, a legitimate rushing threat. Miles Garrett showing uh, that he's going to be a top ten NFL pick.
0: He's going to be the number one overall pick.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, John Chavis making you know just just watching the defense play. Uh, and just watching how they, how, how they pursue the ball and how they gang tackle and just how they kind of just fly around and, and get after. It. I mean, that team's playing with a lot of energy, a lot of just swagger, just a lot of like they, they think and know that they are the best on the field and, the, and they play like it. And they have uh, playmakers on the offensive side of the ball. Um, you know, Trevor Knight is running for touchdowns. He's throwing to – seven different receivers, Trey Williams is, I mean, they're just doing their team that can score and score quick and score early and score often um, all of the above. So I really like them. Um, Louisville is another team that surprised me. Now they probably didn't surprise me as much as Texas A&M, but I thought they were going to kind of be the uh, odd man out of the division race between Clemson and Florida state and themselves. Um, they have actually proved quite the contrary. Um, Lamar Jackson has turned himself into a Heisman contender uh, Josh, you said Washington. I'm not as surprised. I'm surprised that they're kind of in the Final Four mix, but um, but I kind of knew that they were going to do something like this. I knew that they had a chance, um, even more so than anybody uh, that I've mentioned so far had a chance of uh, of competing there. So they weren't as big of a shot to me, so they didn't quite make my list there. Uh, and Wisconsin. Wisconsin is a team that I thought was going to be, again, one of those competitive – Rebuild, revamp—probably not as probably not as big of a project as Arkansas had. But uh, you know, I thought that they were going to be in a tough spot to where they were just just wasn't the right year for them um, at the quarterback position. Uh, not not really sure what they were going to do on the defense. Just not really sure what they had uh, anywhere. So uh, I'm going to put the Badgers in that mix as well. Um, I didn't think they were going to come out and play like they do. Um, but it obviously shows that they 're well coached they 're well prepared and they play above what they 're supposed to be so um, I, I really like the Badgers there and my biggest
0: uh, biggest surprise all right uh, well let 's move to our biggest uh, disappointment and i 'm going a little off the board with this i'm going to uh, I, i'm going with the administration of the Louisiana State University. Um, because not only did they fire Les Miles, who, mind you, is the best coach they've had in, you know, Lord knows how long. They're not going to find someone remotely as good enough to replace him. But then with the whole fiasco, with the rescheduling of the Florida game because of the hurricane and insisting that it be in Baton Rouge, you know, Josh, you and I talked about this on the phone this weekend. And what they're doing there is downright deplorable in a lot of ways, and I, I think that there needs to be a, some real, real change to happen there in order for them to get, you know, uh, to get back in the good graces of the rest of the SEC. On the field, my biggest appointment is Florida State. I picked them to win the national title and have the Heisman Trophy winner in Dalvin Cook. At this point, they're 5-2 and two after getting blown out by Louisville and losing to UNC at home. Uh, dishonorable mention, uh, Michigan State. Uh, they have completely imploded at this point. But, uh, Josh, how about you?
2: Yeah, you know, when we talked on the phone, I, I mentioned I have a hard time assigning a disappointment to some of the teams that have had, that have had a lot of injuries, and uh, Stanford, UCLA, and even Oregon, to a lesser degree, really fit that mold. It, it, it's hard to bash those teams. So I had Florida State as well. They seem like one of the healthiest teams still, um, but they're out of it by mid-October, who would have guessed that? And even if they beat Clemson, I, I don't think that's enough to get back in it. It's the playoffs really do not set up well to have two losses. Uh, and then I also agree with your LSU point. And uh, I wanted to run this by you, Coach, because this is your conference. Um, when I was talking with Matt, I said that this feels like, um, you know, kind of one of those abusive friendships, abusive relationships, abusive co situations where – it's all take, 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 and you know LSU know, knows now that, hey, if they if they just hold firm, they're going to get what they want from the conference and the commissioner. I, I was telling Matt, if I was the commissioner, I would put it to a vote because I doubt that the commissioner could do this unilaterally, and I, I think based on how LSU's acted, the vote might pass, and the proposal that I had was um, like a year or two probation for LSU from any – uh sec postseason play so uh men and women's basketball baseball they can't play in the sec tournament if the football team won the division they wouldn't be allowed to play in the sec title game uh things like that do you think that would pass is is the rest of the league as uh perturbed by lsu's actions over the last um season or so with this ad as the rest of us are Or, or what's the temperature like down there
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that they would. I think that something like that would pass. Um, I I think that um, you would probably have a better chance of having a conference vote to get rid of the AD. Um, I'm not sure how feasible that is as far as getting him unseated from the athletic director position um, or putting enough pressure on LSU with your proposal to get either get rid of the AD or this vote's already passed. We're going to ban you from any postseason. Um, opportunities for two years. Um, if the threat of that came along, I think LSU's president would have no op- other option except to fire the AD. I think this AD is completely sickening, and I think he's. You know, I think the rest of the conference. Yeah, I, I, I would agree that they. I'm sure. Um, just kind of taking the temperature and, and just kind of, just kind of seeing how they how how he's acted over the last two seasons or so. Uh, just, it's just getting, it's just getting tiresome that everyone's over it. And I don't think, I don't think there would be anybody that would, uh, be on, I don't think there would be anybody that would be unhappy with the firing of LSU's
0: AD. So then, uh, so coach, who's your biggest disappointment of the season?
1: Well, uh, conference wise, LSU, um, for all the reasons you mentioned, they've underperformed. They've fired less Miles, and they, they've kind of just botched everything that they've, they've, uh, that they've handled um, this past season. Um, so I- I'm going to say from a PR standpoint, um, LSU, um, on the field they've done okay, but, um, you know, PR-wise they've done horrendously. Uh, Michigan State has got to be one of mine because I said that they were going to compete in the Big Ten and have a chance – to represent their division in the Big Ten title game, they have they have since uh, they have since retreated and backpedaled really fast. Um, and I don't even recognize the team that's out there wearing the green. Um, Notre Dame is another one. Uh, they are what are they two and five? Two and four. Two and four. Uh, I mean, to lose four games and being being that talented. Uh, defensively, they've been atrocious. Um, they just don't seem like a team that's really all that interested in playing. And I don't know how much of it's coaching. I don't know how much of it's just the overall culture or how much of it is they just lost a game and they just can't handle losing a game. And uh, it's just – I don't know what's going on over there, but I'm, I'm, I'm expecting that whole situation to be blown up. And,
0: and, I'm sorry, Coach, you were right. They are 2-5, and five, not 2-4. and four.
1: Yeah, 2-5, and five, which is even worse, even more disappointing. Because they were an outside pick to be in the playoffs this year. A lot of people were kind of picking them in that neck of the woods. Um, and, man, they – you know, just to even play, you know, it's just – even when they played Texas, it just like – they played Texas close in a shootout, and they're just like, what the heck are they doing?
0: I'm not sure if they're going to win more than one game for the rest of the year either. Got, I, don't, I don't
1: think they will either. And
0: They've got, they've got Miami – Navy, who we all know is really good. Army, who is one of Josh's surprise great teams. Virginia Tech, who is, you know, I think that that loss at Syracuse this past weekend was uh, kind of uh, foreseeable because they're coming up on a short week, and, they, and they, I think that they might have overlooked the Orange. And then USC, who is showing some signs of life, with Sam Darnold at quarterback. So, you know, th- there's an outside chance that they finish the season at 2-10. and 10.
1: Yeah, which is, I mean... Two and ten coming into the season, thinking you're going to be competing for a playoff spot, is atrocious.
0: Yeah. So, um, well, let's move uh, from there to uh, best win on the year. And uh, this is a team we've talked about already. My best win of the year is uh, Washington blowing out Stanford, forty-four to six. Um, in that big Friday night game a couple of weeks back, that that was Washington's coming out party. Um, they looked good against some lesser competition up until then, but Stanford, going into the game, was ranked seventh in the country, undefeated, and they not only bottled up Christian McCaffrey, but they bottled up that entire offense. And that was possibly the most dominant performance I've seen by any team uh, this entire season. Uh, Josh, what's your best win?
2: Well, great minds think almost alike. On this one, Matt, because my biggest win was Washington over Oregon. Yeah. Um, this is a, a pretty sizable rivalry uh, out in the Pac-12. It dates back to 1900. Uh, over a hundred times it's been played, and it hasn't been going too well for for Washington. Um, Oregon had won the last 12 straight. And if you go all the way back to 1994, so just after Washington had their really hot streak, including a national title in that group, um, Washington won five straight to start the 90s. But from 94 until this season, it had been 17-4 to in favor of the Ducks. Uh, Can you imagine losing to a rival that many times? I don't know, Matt. We've never done it to the to the Gophers. So it's hard yeah. to imagine. Yeah, i I'm
0: have beaten the Gophers 12 straight. I know.
2: So it's, it's hard to imagine being on the end of a losing streak in a trend that way in a rivalry game. And so for Washington to get that monkey off their back and do it with a 70 point blowout, they won the game by 49. Are you kidding me? That's awesome. Well done for the Huskies.
0: Coach, what's your best win?
1: Well, my best win, um, since none of you guys want to do a, a, one in the Eastern time zone, I will, um, uh, best win up to this point. We don't even
2: want to do one out of the state of Washington.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Louisville completely dismantling Florida state 63 to 20. Uh, that was kind of Lamar Jackson's introduction to the Heisman list. Um, and kind of made him a Heisman front runner at that point. Um, they were up 35 to 10 at halftime on, on a team that Matt, and you picked to win the national championship. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was uh, – and Florida State was ranked number two at the time. Um, it was a top ten matchup, thinking it was going to be game of the century. Week three, um, it was not game of the century, um, unless you're a Louisville fan. So, I'm going to say best win uh, goes to the Louisville Cardinals, 63-20 to 63 to sixty three over the Seminoles, who were at that time uh, favorites to win the national championship and, uh, you know, favorites to definitely run away with the ACC. So, um, Louisville.
0: Yeah, uh, worst loss. Uh, mine is uh, Northwestern losing nine to seven to Illinois State, an FCS team that is under five hundred in the FCS. In fact, they are two and four in the FCS, include uh, just one and three in conference, uh, with their only conference win coming this past weekend against Southern Illinois. This this is a team that has been uh, not typically great in FCS to begin with, and Northwestern, their season has been uh, strange to say the least. Um, uh, Josh, I have a feeling you might have uh, Northwestern featured in your uh, worst loss.
2: Uh, sort of.
0: I have the Iowa losing to North Dakota State. and, and I thought it was going to be the Iowa losing to Northwestern.
2: Um, well, I mean, that one was bad too, but like that is a conference, folks. And, you know, Iowa's... Stubbed their toe against Northwestern before, um, but no, the, the North Dakota State game was was such a t- terrible loss on several different levels. First, Iowa was ranked 13th in the country. Um, they were a few plays away from winning that game, and they were a few plays away from winning Northwestern games. So they could be seven and zero. They could be a top ten team right now. That hurts with recruiting. Um, it kind of messes up the rest of their season projecting forward because even if they were to turn around, win out, blah, 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 you know, a, a big-time bowl game is going to be skittish about taking you because that's such a hit to your resume. So that also impacts recruiting. Um, the, the fact that the second the Rose Bowl ended and Iowa fans are looking at the schedule next year, that game was circled. All of us knew that was their toughest non-conference game And yet Iowa came out, played like a team that frankly has a ton of success when, let's be honest, they have no national titles since 1958. They have no outright conference titles since the 90s. Uh, Their last co-conference title was 2004. So why exactly – Are the Iowa players walking around, strutting around like they're hot shit when North Dakota State has won five straight titles and Iowa hasn't even won five in their history? Makes no sense. So lack of preparation, that was bad. Uh, And then just from a standpoint about the fan base, and this was what really disappointed me, is if you are of the means to afford season tickets and you kind of say, hey, you know, this is the last – nice weather weekend, you know, do something outdoors. It's an FCS school. All right, we can skip it. Give the tickets to a friend, a family member. Eat eat the face value for one week because obviously you can afford season tickets. But instead, get a bunch of fans just throw them up on secondary ticket marketplace, try and make a few bucks. And what happened? North Dakota State, to their credit, bought like 10,000 tickets. They were in Kinnick. They were louder that our fans, it was one of the few times that I've ever felt like how a Northwestern fan base or a Vanderbilt fan base feels when your crowd just isn't helping. And Iowa looked deflated, fans were apathetic, and that just alarmed me because, like, come on, <laughs> show up for the games. Jesus. Jesus. Rand's
1: over.
0: Who wants my soapbox? Coach. Coach, worst loss.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, worst loss for me, um, again, is that same game with uh, Louisville and Florida State. Florida State being what they were at the time. um, Can't give up 63 on the road um, and not show up at all in that game. Uh, They scored a couple garbage touchdowns to make it cosmetically better, but we all know that they got completely flat-out embarrassed. And Jimbo Fisher kind of acted a fool as well, um, and Dalvin Cook was essentially shut down. Um, my Homer edition is uh, UGA losing to Vandy. I thought that was a uh, just a one of those games where you're just like, what the, what the, what the heck are we doing? You know, even if, if as bad as it gets, a home loss on Homecoming against Vandy, and which you don't show up, and it just you come out flat, can't finish, can't can't function on special teams or anything like that. Just completely flat out awful. Um, I'm going to go ahead because I've got to actually uh, get ready for this game. So I'm going to go ahead and give you my Heisman contenders. Um, I like Lamar Jackson, Deshaun Watson, Jabril Peppers, Jake Browning and JT Barrett as my Heisman top five. I think all of them are having tremendous seasons. Jake Browning, uh, the one – That surprises me the most as far as being in that list. He's kind of earned his way there. Jabril Peppers is absolutely the best player overall in the country, and he's a linebacker, which is scary. Uh, Deshaun Watson is kind of fading off of that list a little bit. Lamar Jackson um, is still very much on that list. And then Greg Ward, Jr. is another name I would add um, if I had to drop somebody, which would probably replace Greg Ward, Jr. with Deshaun Watson. Um, But uh, And then my final four, uh, Ohio State. Bama, Michigan, and Washington, um, not in that particular order. But um, if I had to seed them, I would say Bama would match up against Michigan, and Ohio State would match up against Washington in the first round. Um, Ohio State matching up with Washington as a 2-3 match. Bama and Michigan as the 1-4. I would say Bama would beat Michigan. Um, Ohio State would beat Washington barely. And you would have a Bama-Ohio State national championship, which Ohio State's going to come out on top, I do believe still. I'm going to hold strong to my pre- preseason prediction because it's still alive.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Coach. Good luck in the JV game today. Um, and uh, we will we will catch you next time. Um, yes.
1: So I appreciate it, guys. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and get my oh, yeah, out of the way.
0: Oh, yeah. All right. Um, well, uh, I guess, Josh, we should wrap up with our Heisman contenders. Yeah. Uh, so I've, got, uh, I- I've got my top five plus, uh, plus, a, uh, plus a random extra name that I think needs to be looked at a little bit closer. Um, I've still got Lamar Jackson as number one, Jake Browning number two, uh, Deshaun Watson number three, Trevor Knight number four, JT Barrett number five. But one guy to look out for, my man Logan Woodside from Toledo. Yeah, yeah because, their, their receiver is insane. Yeah, well, get this. Logan Woodside is averaging 11.1 yards per attempt. He has 24 touchdowns to four interceptions. Over 2,000 yards, good for a 204.0 quarterback rating.
2: Have you yeah. seen the receiver that he gets to throw to them?
0: Um, uh, which receiver is that?
2: Uh, it's the nation's leading receiver at the time that I saw them play Toledo or saw Toledo play at um,
0: Is He was averaging like 25 yards per reception. Oh, Cody Thompson. Yeah. Yeah, he has 29 catches for 722 yards, 25 yards per catch, but only five touchdowns. So, well, I mean, you know, the season's young. The, the season is young. But, yeah, uh, Logan Woodside, my uh, darker-than-dark horse. Um, for Heisman. How about, what do you got?
2: Well, I kind of have a 1A, 1B, and 1C. And my 1A right now is Lamar Jackson. Yep. And my 1B is JG Barrett. And mm-hmm. my 1C is Jake Browning. Um, yeah. And the reason I say that is because they're very, very different. So at the halfway point, it's tough to kind of compare their stats. So uh, Lamar Jackson, he has... Uh, 1,800 passing yards, 15 TDs, four picks. Um, but what makes him so unique, and that's why I put him just a fraction of a head as the 1A, is his rushing with with 800, over 800 rushing yards and, and 15 touchdowns, which, which is absurd. Um, and then I have JT Barrett. The reason JT Barrett is uh, second is he has... Um, a better completion percentage than Lamar Jackson, more touchdowns by one than Jackson, and four picks. But he also has that running nature um, with over 400 rushing yards and six touchdowns. And, you know, he's done it against Oklahoma and now Wisconsin. And that's why I put Jake Browning third kind of of this three-headed monster because uh, while Browning has been incredible – Oregon and Stanford, their biggest wins so far, aren't quite at the level of what Louisville and Ohio State have done so far. But Browning is the prototypical pocket passer. He has just 48 rushing yards. So he's got to do it all through the
0: air. He's got – Yeah, but he's got 26 touchdowns to two picks or something like that.
2: Yeah, he's got 23 touchdowns, two interceptions, uh, a 72.2 completion percentage – That's uh, almost 10 points higher than JT Barrett's, which is already higher than Lamar Jackson's and uh, over 1,400 yards. So he's doing really well. And then um, I have a fourth guy. He's in the mix but a little back. That's Jabril Peppers. And the reason I can't quite buy into it yet is uh, I've been crunching his numbers. He's got 25 tackles um, solo tackles so far on the year, 35 total. And, um, you know, he's a linebacker. So you would expect more tackles than the last offensive player. And that's Woodson and Woodson had, um, 44 tackles. So, um, I can't find Woodson's solo tackles, which is hard to do, but, um, you know, he's got 44 tackles Gabriel Peppers right now just has 35. So he's on pace to to beat Woodson's tackles, but not by, like, a dramatic amount. And then the returns, uh, Peppers has one touchdown. He's got a 17.8 average. Uh, Woodson's returns, here they are, is – He's, uh, where is it? There it is. My bad. Uh, Woodson averaged, uh, you know, he had 33 returns, 283 yards, and a touchdown. So, actually, Drew Peppers is a little ahead right now of Woodson in the return. So, he he's comparable to the only other defensive player that we have to kind of compare their numbers. But I wouldn't say he's blowing Woodson out of the water, which I think Does matter because I think a good case study is, to me, uh, McCaffrey last year blew the all-purpose yards out of the water against Barry Sanders, and even that wasn't enough for him to win the Heisman. So, So Peppers is not crushing the last and only defensive player to win the Heisman, so he doesn't really have that historical note to him. And then he's got the misfortune of having three offensive players who are clearly having incredible seasons right now. Lamar Jackson, obviously, running away with the most touchdowns ever put together in football. So it's going to be really, really, really difficult for Peppers to to crack that triumvirate and win the Heisman. But I don't think he's worthy of being invited the Heisman.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think he is too. All right, uh, my uh, the, the four teams I see going to the playoff uh, will be Alabama, Ohio State, Washington, and Louisville, because I think Clemson's going to lose twice. Louisville will go win the ACC title and get into the playoff.
2: Interesting, interesting. I'm taking a little bit more scientific approach. Uh, so in the poll that was released this morning, feel free to check it out. I tagged it on our Facebook page. Uh, Page Um, and for the future for listeners because I you know I reference the poll and and sometimes you guys do too. Um, I'm going to have it before our recap show from now on. But my top four is Alabama, Ohio State, Michigan, and Washington. But OSU and Michigan will eliminate one of each other. So um, I think Ohio State is a little bit a little bit better than Michigan at this point. So I'll go Alabama, Ohio State, slot Washington up. And then in my five and six spot, I have Clemson and Louisville. Um, with the head-to-head win, the scientific approach would be to say Clemson holds on, buttons down the hatches, and, and gets through it. So I'll slot them up. That means I've got Bama, Buckeyes, Washington, Clemson. And, you know, Washington uh, can pass the ball at Ohio State. They, they gave up some passes to Wisconsin. So I would say in that 2-3 matchup, I would take the Huskies to win. Alabama's night and day better than anyone else, so they would beat Clemson again. And then the title game, Alabama-Washington, I would be rooting so, so hard for the Huskies, but I would have Alabama winning another national title,
0: yeah. taking, down,
2: taking down a really really good Washington team. But, uh, but man, Alabama's so good.
0: Alabama is on a different playing field than everyone else. Yep. I, I, I think that the gap between Alabama and Ohio State or Clemson or Michigan or whoever you want to put as number two is just as big as the gap between that number two team and the number 30 team in the country. Uh, that's, that's
2: probably a good assessment. And, you know, the, the fun, like, thought experiment that people love to do is Alabama versus the worst NFL, NFL team. And – I would pick the NFL team, but I think it would be much like Wisconsin versus Ohio State this past weekend. I think Ohio State would make enough plays. You mean Alabama? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I meant like the Wisconsin-Ohio State scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where Alabama would make enough plays to keep it competitive and equip themselves quite well but ultimately come up short.
0: So Alabama versus the Browns, you're you're still going to take the Browns. I think so. I mean, I don't know. The, the, the Browns are starting Cody Kessler at, at quarterback right now. So,
2: <laughs> I mean, some of it is just biology too. I mean, yeah, those the guys who were in their late twenties and early thirties have been doing an NFL workout regime for five to seven
0: years, mm-hmm. and they're,
2: so they're just going to be straight up stronger in the trenches.
0: Alabama that that's that's where you would worry but you know it would it it would definitely be a a fun game to watch well that's gonna wrap uh it up for us today here on illegal motion so um uh on behalf of the now departed uh coach Corey Burton and our intrepid blogger from Big Ten and counting Josh Cook this is the professor Matt Perkins saying so long and see you next time on the illegal motion college football podcast oh yeah did I do that right oh yeah